it's nine years now, but I think about it every single day. I could tell you everything that happened that night. You know, I don't ever forget what has happened at all. I was fully convinced at um, two minutes after it happening, before I moved inside in the ship, that I was fully convinced I was dead or going to be within seconds. The first Christmas, they wanted Daddy to come home or to go to heaven for the day. They didn't ask for toys. They didn't ask for sweets. They just asked for to go to heaven and see Daddy. This is the story of three people who witnessed death at close hand. Debbie McGuinness lost two friends in the Stardust Fire. Larry O'Brien had a lucky escape from the Zeebrugge car ferry disaster. And Maura McDade was with her husband Terry in their North Belfast home when gunmen shot him dead. It's the story of how these events have affected their lives, what it's like to be at heaven's door. St. Valentine's Day, 1981, will be remembered in Dublin forever. In front of me, the horror of the Artane tragedy pulls at the heart as the Dublin papers cry out in many words and pictures... We were... got seconds up towards to get New York. We didn't even get as far as our coats and the lights flickered. <coughs> and um, we, we, of course, then there was panic and all the people screaming. The three of us were to, running towards the side... But I remember Paula more so because she had my hand and she kept turning, she turned around to me and kept telling me to put my hand to my mouth so that the smoke wouldn't go in. But I did, which I did then, but the, when the smoke's coming into your mouth, it's like, it was like eating coal dust. It was just cold. It was like just black dust. So, <coughs> sorry, we're still running. And then, the, as I say, the heat came. It just, as if it followed you. It came behind you. And I remember it hit me smack right in the back of my neck. And just, I remember jumping with it. And then it was all around. It was just, it was intense heat. But the first impact, it was like getting a belt of something on the back of your neck. At that stage, Paula's hand was lost from mine. And I remember standing there and my face was like as if it was melting. You know, you just feel, you feel like it's all crumpling. You know, something plastic burns and it crumples. It's like you're just tighten up. You feel your hair going out, you know. So I stood there and I screamed, and I Paul, and she was just gone. Sandra, gone. Couldn't, well, you couldn't see anyway. So I decided then to make my way down. I kind of didn't know where I was then. It was pitch black, and if you're in a bedroom, I find the lights off, you're fumbling, even if it's, it's what you call it, not new to you. So I went as a, down, as if I was going downstairs, 
and a few times I put my hand on the chairs and it was that hot it, your hands nearly would come away but they're, they're fine now but it, you know the plastic was out your skin you had to pull your skin away from it and I, I remember lying down and then I looked and Sandra was lying beside me and I remember we were so happy to see each other you know we were hugging we were so happy but really we were so happy just to find each other and I remember Sandra was so scared and I always remember she if she was alive they'd probably say the same about me but she was so scared and she always was so proud of being afraid of nobody, you know, real sensible and nothing frightened her. But she was so scared. And just for that, I mean, we were happy then. The two of us lay down together and we were quite happy. Well, I have to, I can't speak for Sandra, of course. But because I found somebody, I wasn't, I wasn't alone. I was happy. So I, kind of was quite, I think I was falling asleep. And Mary, this other girl who had come with us, came over and she showed me. And she said, get up. She said, no, Mary, I said, we'll go to sleep. You're better off going to sleep. She said, Debbie, get up, you know. So I crawled a few feet and the two of us were holding on to each other. And we moved maybe three feet. And next of all, this blast of cold air just hit us in the face. So we, we, kind of, we woke up then, you know, well, we were the, the, the startled anyway with the cold air. And we crawled out another bit and then we were pulled the rest of the way. So... We got in, in into the ambulance. Now, I have to say at this point, I didn't think about Sandra lying beside me at this point. I didn't, I have to say. So all day long, Paul and Sandra were missing, but I didn't know. But I remember my mother was saying to me, you should pray for them to die because they're born very badly. Now, they were dead at this point. I think they were still missing, but they were presumed dead. And she kept saying to me, you should pr pray for them to die because um, they wouldn't like to live being as scarred as they are. I said, okay, and I used to pray for them to die. But I didn't know what I was doing either. I have to, I mean, I don't want to sound really hard, but I didn't know what I was doing. But I, I was told Sandra and Paula um, died about a week later. And I think then <coughs> kind of did sink in because I, I cried and I cried. I kept saying to myself, sure, I prayed for them to die. Why wouldn't they be dead? And I remember all that week I kept saying to my mother, don't forget to get me a get well card so I can send Paula and Sandra a card. She told me they were in Jarvis Street. They had to say these things to you <coughs> for my radio. And every day they'd come up and they'd forgotten my radio and I'd get terribly annoyed, you know. So then I began to realise to myself that maybe I could have taken Sandra out with me. Now, maybe I could have. But I know now that I wasn't capable then, but I always wonder, why didn't I... She was lying right next to me. I mean, she was right, right next to me. I didn't think... I, I, don't, I don't know. I have no excuse or anything for that I, I don't know why I feel terrible guilty about that maybe I could have saved her you know I mean I, I, maybe I could have but I just didn't think I never saw Paula after that time when she broke through when someone broke through her hands never and I stood there shouting for her and I know she wouldn't have left me either I know you probably didn't save yourself but no way she wouldn't have I know in my heart and soul she wouldn't have but you do feel I do feel terrible guilty I, maybe I could have helped her you know, had I, but I, I've, no, I've no reason, I've no, I can't tell you why I did or I didn't because I still don't know, but I still think about that.
As you heard, over 130 people are now feared to have lost their lives when the Townsend Torreson Ferry, the herald of free enterprise, capsized just outside the Belgian port of Zeebrugge on the weekend. The reason for the accident is as yet unclear. The weather was perfect, it would seem there was no collision, and the boat was in shallow water just outside... The, the one thing that sticks in the memory of the lot of the whole episode was the time... We say three to four minutes after it all happening, it was the, the roars and the shouts and the crying in board the ship, inside, in it, just as I got out on the side of it. It was something I'll never forget, as long as I live. That was, I saw the only, that was nearly the worst part of it. Even to think about it, like, I mean, thinking about it, um, people will ask you, will you get, do you get nightmares or anything like that? I mean, you don't have to go to bed to get nightmares. I mean, you could just flash in front of your eyes any time. I mean, it'll always be there. You think you'll never forget. I mean, I wouldn't have to go to bed to think about it. Driving a car or walking down the road or anywhere. I mean, if you just close your eyes, it's there. Something you'll never forget, you know. But two or three minutes, I suppose, had passed before I kind of got myself together. You know, I was actually in the restaurant and I went over and all I could hold, hold on to was the, the jam of the door at the time. And uh, if you can imagine a ship been on its side, I was hanging out a door jam, and I was upright. So I climbed up onto the patrician outside the door, and it was made of glass. Stood up on the kind of the supports every three or four feet. There was uh, support coming down, made of metal. So I was kind of spread legged on the supports. I was there for about a minute. I was wondering what to do or which way to go. People were actually beginning to move now that hadn't been on that side of the ship that I went down on, and panicking pushing and shoving, wondering which way they would go. So I was there for, I suppose, uh, five minutes in total, wondering what to do. So I decided like, there was no way to go up or down because you'd be pushed down into the ship. So I, I think the only way to go was up, safest place to be, no one up, and try to climb up to a porthole window or something like that. It was about, must have been 25 or 30 feet up to the porthole window. I got on the side, and if you can imagine... You're standing actually on the side of the ship that's in the water just above the porthole. So it's very wet, very slippy. And uh, when I got out, I got out and I just sat down on the side of the ship for a minute and looked around. All I could see was the lights of the Bruges. And uh, wondering what I was going to do next in a state of panic. Um, I suppose after a few minutes, I thought I spotted a ship a long way off. And one of these big cigarette lighters. I had my pocket, or a cigarette lighter I had in my pocket, I don't know which one I was at the time. I tried to flash it to get the ship's attention. It was about a mile off, you know. That was only in a state of panic. Catholic man was shot dead in North Belfast last night and his 66-year-old mother was wounded in a sectarian attack. The man has been named as Terry McDade, a 31-year-old builder who was married with two young children. Fergal Keane reports. I came down into the living room and Terry was sitting on the chair beside the television and Mrs McDade was sitting on the far end of the settee and Grandma was in the centre of the floor. I sat on the settee 
nearest to the living room door. Um, we were just sitting talking. The next thing there was this horrific noise. It wasn't like a door or glass breaking. It was a loud thumping noise and stamping. Terry and I just froze and I sat staring at Terry and he sat staring at me. And I thought, please God, let the children cry because I thought they'd pulled the bunk beds down so it'd only gone to bed. Then the living room door went open and I turned round and threw my leg over the side of the chair to close the door, but my leg wouldn't reach the door and the two gunmen were standing in firing position with masks on. You couldn't see any flesh at all. They just started firing and they jumped into the room and were firing the smell and the noise was terrible. The vacuum cleaner was sitting beside me and I lifted the hose of the vacuum cleaner and the one who was nearest to me, I hit on the arm. When I hit him on the arm, I brought his arm and the gun down. He lifted the gun and put it to my head. And I threw my arms over my head and threw myself onto the settee. It was just as if it was in slow motion, as if I was going down really slow, and as I was going down, my mother-in-law's legs came up and the bullet went hit her in the leg. He fired two shots. Uh, I jumped. I was screaming at them to get out and to go away. They never spoke or they never said anything. I jumped off the city and jumped up in between the two of them and I thought Terry shouted to me. And when I turned around, Terry was standing on the floor. And as I looked, they shot him in the chest. And he shouted to me more, they've got me. I thought they just turned and walked out of the house and I ran to the phone and as I was dialing for the ambulance the two of them stood in the porch taking their hoods off I rang for the ambulance and some of the neighbours started to come to the door I came back into Terry and he was on the his head was resting on the settee and his body on the floor he was still alive I told him not to panic, that I'd be okay, that I'd rang an ambulance. Uh, I was in the hall and two detectives came. It, the children were screaming at the top of the stairs. The neighbours told them to go back into their bedroom. My sister came with somebody else to take them down to my mummy's house. And as I came to the living room door, Tracy looked in and seen her daddy. And she heard somebody saying that he was still breathing. So the two of them were taken to mummies, and the detectives took me into the front room to question me. They asked me, was there any reason why my husband should have been shot and different questions like that. But I told them there wasn't. Myself, my mother and father and all got into the ambulance and arrived at the Matter Hospital. I just walked around casually. It all seems so unreal. Then the sister came and asked me if I realised that my husband was very seriously wounded. I just said to her sister, please pray for me, be okay. Don't worry, he's going to be all right. She came back within seconds and asked me if I wanted a priest. And I said if she thought he needed one, get a priest. 
immediately after that, the priest came from behind the curtains and put his arms around me. And they took me to a small room. The sister then came and asked if I'd want to see my husband. They took me into the room, and Terry was lying on a trolley. He had his jeans and his goodies still on him, and there was a sheet over him. He was still warm, and he was flexible. He didn't look as if he was dead. And on the sheet, there was, as I thought, water stained, but it wasn't. It was blood on the sheet. And, and a priest from our own parish came and took me home. At this stage, a neighbour had taken the two children, because all I could think of was, how was I going to tell those children? And they were sleeping, so I didn't wake them. It was just to give them another couple of hours' peace. But I told the girl that as soon as I woke, no matter what time it was, she had to come and get me. Then, in the early hours of the morning, the keys were left to mummies to say that the detectives and forensic had left the house. And I came back up. When I came through the door, you could still smell the gunpowder. It was horrible. The whole house was just black with dust from the fingerprints. It was glass on the floor. It was just something you'd see in a horror film. It was terrible. It just didn't look like our house. Then, about eight o'clock, my sister came to say that the children were awake and she went to get Tracy and Patricia to bring them up. And I rang for the priest to come and sit with me while I told them. The two of them came in. And sat beside me, one on either side on the settee. Tracy was eight and Patricia was six. I had been crying and I knew there was something wrong and I just told them the only way I knew I could, just said that Daddy was dead and he'd gone to heaven. Patricia just said, Mummy, can I go out to play now? Tracy... Tracy really broke her heart. Patricia just had no idea what I'd said to her. She was still waiting to go to hospital to see Daddy. And everything else seems just a blur. And sometime that afternoon, I can't remember what happened in between, but sometime that afternoon, Terry came home. I don't remember him coming in. And... Trissy kept checking her daddy's chest because she said that they said he was breathing and she, she wanted me to take him out of the coffin and put him on the chair. They'd never seen anybody dead before. They'd never seen anybody in a coffin. And it was all so new to them. They just... Then... I don't know how everything got done, but it did. Everything just seemed to happen and... It just all was so unreal. It, it felt as if it was happening to somebody else and I was watching it. And even if it was happening to me, 
I didn't feel as if I was in my body anymore. I felt as if I was outside watching everything that was going on. The full impact, I think, didn't hit me till... Oh, it could have been a year later. I mean, I really remember, you, you're so protected, really. You're, you're cushioned, you go around in a daze. Some things aren't said in front of you. You're not allowed to see papers. You don't really have a chance, I suppose. I mean, Paula and Sandra died. But it took me a while to really realise that. It's only when I sometimes say, sure, I'll tell them. I say, God, they're not there. You know, I go out at night sometimes, and like Brian might be babysitting, and I go out with my friend. I wonder, am I going to come home tonight? You know, I really, believe me, I really think that. I wonder when I'm leaving here, am I? Didn't you say, why, why are you going out then? Then I'll say to myself, but I mean, you, I have friends and they, you, you go out with your friends. You, I mean, it's easy to say, if you're afraid of not coming home, why do you go out? But I have to go out too. You know, you, you need something. And then if Brian, if Brian comes in at quarter past five every evening, if he's five minutes late, he'll tell you that I'm out looking for him. I think he's dead. As far as I'm concerned, he's dead. I mean, I don't think maybe he's had a puncture or maybe this or maybe had to work a bit late. No, he's dead. I mean... He can't be late. He, he tell you that himself. He, you know, he, he, it's terrible. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but I often, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> I often think about Stacy or him dying, and I don't think I know no one can. No one says they can cope with death, or nobody can cope with death. But I couldn't bear to lose anybody else. I don't honestly believe I, my mind could take it if anything happened to them. I do, I really. I know everyone feels the same. I mean, not, no one wants that to happen to there. But I, I think, I personally think I took Sanders and Paula's deaths very well. Maybe too well. That I just don't think I, I could do it again. I just don't think I could. You know, I don't know. It's just, maybe I, I do think sometimes I took it too well. You know, from maybe I tried to be too brave, maybe. You know, I think that's what it was too. But I don't ever forget them. You know, they're always there. And <clears throat> I often wonder, both of them would have been 28 this year. And I wonder what they have. Paula loved kids. Both of them loved kids. Would they be married and would they have kids? You know, and then you hear people say, people say, um, Asher, they'd be only mess talking to you. Should God only takes the good young. And I say, well, maybe he did. Maybe there's something worse for me. And then you say, well, what's worse? I mean, I can't think of anything that could be worse, but maybe, but why did he leave me to live? Is there some other reason? Am I, am I going to, something worse going to happen to me? That's something I think about. Maybe something worse, or maybe he kept me here for a reason. I live with it every day. I think about it every day. There's just certain little things would remind me of what Paula might have done or Sandra might have done. It's something that's I'll never, ever forget. I'll never look back on it because I live with it. That's all I really do. I live it with it. And I think it was such a, a sad thing to happen to young people. We were all so young and we were out enjoying ourselves, having a good time, doing no harm to anybody, I'd have to say. And you wonder why it happened. And... I remember 
at the time when I was the first started, I remember saying, oh, God, help me. And I'm not religious and it didn't make me any more religious. I went possibly the other way because as far as I'm concerned, if there was a God up there, he wouldn't have done it. Or he, not that he wouldn't have done it, he wouldn't have let it happen. Because it just shouldn't have happened. I mean, we weren't doing any harm to anybody. So if there is a God up there, he shouldn't have let it happen. And I, I know I did say, oh, God, help me. That was, to me was instinct. I didn't, I, maybe I was pleading with him to help me because if he was there, he would have helped me. Not me, us. But he wasn't there to help. So the stardust to me is part of life. It's it's just, it's it blends in with my life and I live with it and I'll never be without it. Even in 20 years time, I won't be without it because you never, ever forget the fear. When I came home after the accident, I stayed at home for a number of weeks. I think four weeks or something, I stayed at home. And at that stage, there was no money coming in. I mean, that was grand. I had a house, a wife, a child, and another one arrived after I coming home, my second child. And no money coming in. So I decided, well, four weeks, that's a long, long enough sitting around. I mean, I had to make money, I had to earn money. I decided I would go back to work. I'd been offered a job by the company I used to work for before that previously, driving on the continent again. And uh, I decided, well, it's either face it, get back, see, can I go back at it? Get back in and do it. Uh, I was never the same really after that on a ship. I couldn't relax or I couldn't sleep. And in bad weather, I'd be in bits. I'd be a nervous wreck. But still, I'd do it. But I'd be in bits about it, you know. When I get off like you're supposed to drive, it'd take me a couple of hours to recover. It really affected my wife more so than me, really. She wanted. She was very nervous of me going away after that, especially on board ship or going out to the continent. She wasn't very impressed with it. So I decided after about 10 months back at work on the continent, I'd have to give it up. Um, before that, I never really thought about it. I just go and do it, go away, do the job, come back. But after the accident, I said, I wonder why am I doing all this? Why am I going away all the time? Would I not be better like any normal person, nine to five job, come home in the evening, sit down, be there with your family, weekends off. It took me 10 months before I finished the job after going back to work and sit down and realize, what will I do? I'll have to do something else. I went into car sales near Ross, selling cars for the last year and a half, and I'm still at it. To me now, after being home for the last year and a half and giving up the job on the continent and being at home every weekend and every night with a wife and kids, before the accident, I never had that, even though I was married, uh, but I never had that because I was never at home. Like Some people think, a continental driver's, truck driver's life, you're never there. You're in one day and you're back to the continent the next day for maybe two weeks or three weeks. You come home, you might be home for one night, you're gone again. I never had that. So since I gave up the job and I'm home every night, it's uh, a thing I don't think I'd leave anymore. I'd stay at home. You know, it's something that I'd changed that way, but I'd never had, before I didn't know about it. But now, since I started and gave it up, it's completely, I've changed that way. That's something that would be... Um, Certainly a big change for me. Before work, 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 I was a workaholic. Not saying I'm not now either, but um, 
morning, noon, and night it was work with me. I never really had time to stop and enjoy myself, look around you. But um, worry, I never worried as such about things. Now I would worry about things, like banks, you know, okay, like what can they do to me now at this stage, you know? Um, what can they do to me? What can they take off me at this stage, you know? But I wouldn't, beforehand, I would worry about things like that, you know? Now I wouldn't. I mean, what can they do to me? You know, uh, I certainly enjoy life more now than I did then. You know, I mean, look at it this way. I could have been gone. I got a second chance. Uh, you live so long, enjoy it when you're in it. It's as simple as that. You don't know when you're going to go. I mean, I didn't expect anything to happen that night. And it nearly did. So I said, well, as long as we're alive, we might as well enjoy our life. And that's it now. That was a question I asked over and over again. Why? Why, Terry? Why our house? I knew there had to be a reason. Somewhere there had to be a reason for it. And something that played very heavily on my mind was the fact that there were so many soldiers about that night. A lot more soldiers than I had seen in a long, long time. They were everywhere. There was helicopters in the sky. They left at quarter to ten and... Terry was shotgun on for 10 o'clock. It just seemed unreal, and I couldn't understand how this could happen. You know, that anybody would have the courage with such a high security presence about to commit a crime as they did. It was in November of 89 that a programme came on the television one night. It was a spotlight programme. And... I suppose that programme confirmed everything that was haunting me, but I didn't want to believe. There was a, a UDR girl in Girkwick Barracks and a corporal in the British Army who handed out to the UDA names and addresses of people who they said were Republicans. And one of those names was a McDade with our address, but it wasn't Terry McDade. It's very, very hard to live with, and it's very hard to explain to two children and to protect them the reason why their daddy was shot. Because it's very hard for me to come to terms with it all. So I don't know what it'll be like for them to try to grasp it all. At the moment, the parts they know is very difficult, and they constantly question about it. I'll never forgive them for leaving the three of us behind. That is one thing I'll not for, You know, they should have taken the four of us. To me, what they done was completely and utterly cowardly. If they had have taken the four of us, then it would have been a, life would be easier, it would have been a lot simpler. Yeah, and Tracy and Patricia both feel the same. They both want to know why they didn't shoot them as well, because they feel it's unfair. Both of them would have preferred to have been shot too. Life in itself is just complete. In fact, having said life, at the moment I don't have a life. I exist from day to day. It's something you get up, you have to do. You just, you have to get on with life. You have to live your part of this world. Though 
you don't really feel part of the world anymore. You feel, you feel very alone, very isolated. Your life has been taken from you. You know, the night they shot Terry, they took Tracy and Patricia and the most important thing in our lives, they took it off us that night. And to try to put pieces together when the main piece is gone isn't easy. It's, it's very difficult. Life doesn't have much meaning. It's, it's something you just have to do, you have to go on. In the beginning, I used to be convinced if everybody go away, if they'd leave me sitting on a chair, I could die. The only thing people would have said, you know, how lucky I was to have the children. It might sound awful, but to me, that wasn't why I felt. All I kept thinking was if I hadn't got the children, I could sit down and die and get out of here. But as time went on, I realised the children are the only thing that have kept me here today, the only thing I have to go on for them, because I know what they suffered and still are suffering. And for children to have to go through that, it's cruel, it's not fair. It's not fair on them, the pain that they go through day in and day out. It's not just the fact that their daddy died. Their daddy died under horrific circumstances and they had to listen to the noises that night. Plus all the other things that were left, the sense of smell, the fear, what they heard and what was seen. They live with that every day and are terrified and would still worry about gunmen coming to the house to shoot mummy now. They would worry about that. You know, I have to reassure them and reassure them over and over again they won't come back because they're terrified that they'll come back. They live in fear of them coming back again. It's reassuring them of things like that. Life just took on a completely different meaning. There's no meaning to it. There's nothing there. There's the children, I have to keep going for them. Because they've suffered enough and there's no point in them suffering anymore. And life for them isn't easy. Patricia, she was only six and she came home one day and I was really worried about her because I was scared she would harm herself because she said she wanted to get a knife and stick it in her chest and then she could go to heaven to, her, to be with her daddy. Because she was a daddy's girl, she was a real daddy's girl and she just wanted to go to heaven. The first Christmas, they wanted Daddy to come home or to go to heaven for the day. They didn't ask for toys. They didn't ask for sweets. They just asked for to go to heaven and see Daddy. It's things like that you cannot give them. Normally at Christmas, any mother tries to give their child what they want for Christmas. But when they ask for something like that, what do you give them? There's nothing to replace Terry. There's nothing I could have given them that would have taken it away. But they were very, very brave for me at Christmas. They do try very hard to be, to be brave. For my sake. And constantly worry about, is mummy okay? And if anything happened to mummy, what would they do? At night, when they go to bed, sometimes 
they'll not let me see them crying because they don't want to upset me. They'll go to bed and they'll cry for their daughter. But usually when you ask them to say it's a story or something else, you have to say straight out to them, but it's not really that, is it? It's daddy you want. And they say, yeah, they just want them back just for one wee minute. You try to explain to them that daddy's with them all the time, but tell you, they can't see daddy and they can't hear daddy's voice and they can't touch daddy and they can't go to the park anymore with daddy. All the things they've done with them that they can no longer do. It's very, very hard for them. You know, it's hard to believe that a child can actually wish they were dead that had been shot. I could understand me saying it, but when they said it to me, I couldn't believe it when I heard them say it, because it was something that was very strong in my mind. But when they said, why did the gunmen not shoot, shoot us all and take us all to heaven? It's hard. Tracy and Patricia would constantly worry about me. Initially, Tracy would have, you know, got clothes out of the wardrobe and said, here, Mummy, put that on you. I very seldom wore makeup, but it would have been, here, Mummy, put your makeup on. Because to her, if I looked okay on the outside, she was convinced Mummy was okay. She always sensed when things were hardest for me. And it was at times like that she would make you put on clothes that you'd only normally wear if you were going out over the door. You'd be doing your housework in them just to please her. Constantly watching you, constantly wondering how you're feeling. Actually taking on a mother role of mother and me when I was trying to mother her, but she probably made the better job of the two. Nighttime was their hardest time going to bed. It was a nightmare because they used to just scream for daddy, they wanted daddy back. What does heaven look like and why can they not go to heaven? Just totally broken hearted. It wasn't like children crying, it was real screams from the heart. You just knew that their hearts were broken too, wanting daddy but not being able to get him. It's just a matter of getting through every day. When you get up in the morning, you wish it was bedtime. And when it's bedtime, you wish it was morning. You just spend your time wishing your life away. <laughs>